Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. Listen each week for updated content and be sure to share with your friends. We hope this podcast is a blessing and a resource to you as you pursue God daily. Look, tonight's gonna be uh, a little different. And so the point of tonight is we wanted to preview and give you a little taste of what it's like to go through Healing Place College and to be a part uh, of this amazing ministry. And so tonight is gonna be different in the sense that it's we're not preaching a sermon tonight. We're actually gonna do a two-part teaching uh, and it's gonna be an incredible, and Colleen's gonna come up in just a second. She'll kick off the first part, and then I'll come up afterwards and finish us out. But I wanted to lay a little bit of theological groundwork for you, okay? So that we're all starting on the same page. So in the Old Testament, there were three offices, there were three roles in particular that were held by the leaders in the Old Testament. And so I want you to write these three roles down. They are prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Now this isn't in the notes. This is like the uh, before the notes part. So just write this anywhere that you can find some blank space. The prophet, the priest, and the king. Now it's important to know this, that these three people were never the same person. God did not allow for the prophet to be the priest or the priest to be the king. And these three offices is how God led his people. But all of them were prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come one day and the Messiah would be the first person to hold all three offices. The Messiah would be a prophet the Messiah would be a priest and the Messiah would be the king. Now, I want you to think about it like this. Jesus is all of those things all the time. But what the Bible does is it lays out his ministry in segments. So if you're taking notes, this will be on the screen. If you're taking notes, I want you to think about it like this. From the time that Jesus was born till the time that he died, so his earthly ministry, Jesus primarily acted as God's prophet. When you look back in the Old Testament, the prophets really did three things. The prophets performed miracles. So you think about Elijah calling down fire. You think about Moses parting the Red Sea. The, the prophets would perform miraculous signs. They would, two, preach God's word. The prophets were the mouthpiece of God. They would go out and they would proclaim God's word. So they were also, uh, so the three things were they were, uh, they were proclaiming God's word, they're performing miracles, but then they were also talking about the future. So when you read in the gospels and you read about what Jesus is doing in the gospels, he is doing the work of a prophet. So from his birth to his death, he's primarily walking in uh, the ministry of prophet. But beginning at his death, with his resurrection and his ascension, and up until right now in this point, he is primarily working as a priest. And Colleen is gonna explain that in just a minute. But one day, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to come back. And this is when we'll talk about this at the end. But when he comes back from his second coming, all the way to eternity, Jesus will forever reign as king. And so there are these three offices. 
And so if this was like 10 hours long, we could probably unpack all of that, but we're not gonna be able to. So we just chose two offices. And so Colleen is gonna come up and she is gonna talk about the priesthood and how Jesus fulfills that. And then I will come up at the end and talk about the kingship and how Jesus fulfills that. Come on, let's clap our hands for Colleen as she kicks us off tonight. Awesome, you ready? Here we go. It's gonna be amazing. We're excited. I might come at you like a fire hydrant. So here we go, because I've got a lot in me. Um, it's very exciting. But one of the roles is priest that I totally forgot. So I'm gonna say this during announcements. If you came to give your offering, we're gonna do that at the end. That's what the Levites did. They received the offering. So we're gonna do that at the end. Uh, so don't worry about that now, okay? <laughs> we're gonna talk about priests tonight. Y'all ready? You got the priest side open? All right, Jesus is our high priest. Okay, so this summer I made a really poor decision in the summertime. I decided that I wanted to cut back my kids' scream time. Any parents in here? Anybody else like, I need to cut back my kids' screen time? Summer, we just have let them go, and I decided to cut it back. And so my husband, who is a creative guru, decided to put a code on all screens that only he knows. And that way, when they asked me, I'd say, go ask your dad. And they, he, would, he would know the, the code. But this became a real problem because... What was once unlimited, that the only rule was that they couldn't eat in front of the screen, now became limited. And it was limited to what they could watch, when they could watch it, how they could get access to it, and who could give them access to it. You know, I thought about how much that's like the creation. That's what God did when he created Adam and Eve. Unlimited, come walk with me, come be with me, be blessed and hang out with me in my presence. God, rule and reign. That's what he called Adam and Eve to do, rule and reign. Everything I have is yours. The only thing you can't do is eat that tree in the garden, right? And it was amazing, and it was awesome. And they lived with him unashamed and enjoying life. They ruled and reigned and were sustained, and it was all very good until, dun, 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 right? Until they made that choice. And Genesis 3, 23 through 24 came with a consequence. It says, so the Lord banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had made, been made. And after sending them out, the Lord stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life, to guard the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would go forth tonight. Lord, you've put a lot of this in my heart, God, in reading your word and just bringing to life who you are, what you've done, and what you are doing. God, that you would just speak that word to your people. You would give them freedom and forgiveness tonight. You would give them just trust in who you are and your faithfulness. Lord, as we speak tonight, God, that your word would go forth and that would change our hearts and lives forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about the priesthood. The first is the function, and this is kind of the teachery part. So why do we need a priest? What is the need for a priest? And we just talked about this in Genesis, because sin separates, but God desires to be close. Sin separates, but God desires to be close. You see, when we chose to disobey, we lost access there was a barrier put up and no way to get back to the garden. We chose pleasure over God's presence and it created a chasm too far and too wide for us to ever get back to. Yet our soul desires to return to relationship. 
I heard this quote from Harvest Church that A.W. Pink said. He said, we tend to think far too little of God's holiness and perfections. And on the other hand, far too much of humanity's innate worthiness. The Bible teaches us everywhere that there is a gulf between the sinful humanity and the Lord who is holy. And it's so great that we are hopeless to cross that gulf on our own without someone who's equipped to stand in the gap. I know this is a hard truth, but truth is sometimes hard. The truth is, church, we aren't good people that just need a leg up when we mess up. And sometimes we wanna say, well, they were a good person. They're good people, but we're not. We are sinners in need of a savior. All of us would have made that same choice in the garden, right? My daughter's just 10, will be like, oh, I wouldn't make that choice. I would just not eat that fruit. Yes, we do that all the time when we choose to lie or steal or have pride or have anger or have malice or envy or jealousy. We do that. We are not good people who need a leg up. We are sinners in need of a savior. But our God is so good and desires to be close to us. And so he set up a temporary solution. And that temporary solution was the law and the sacrificial system. The law and the sacrificial system. So we're gonna talk tonight about the Mosaic Covenant. Turn to your neighbor and say, Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant. I know it sounds so hard, but there's five covenants in the Bible. You know some of them probably without even knowing them. Noah had a covenant made with God to protect him, right? The the rainbow that he would never flood the earth again. That was God's covenant with Noah. Abraham, that he would give them generations and a nation. And then God made a covenant with Moses. And this covenant was very unique. You see it on the Mount Sinai. You probably know the Charlton Heston, right? The, The law. God made a covenant with his people. But this was significant because it was a conditional blood covenant made between God and the nation of Israel on Mount Sinai. It was an if then, obey the law and you'll be blessed. Don't obey the law and you will be cursed. You see other covenants that are in the Bible, God is bound by his own promise. It has nothing to do with us. God makes the covenant, God makes the promise, God fulfills it regardless of our faithfulness. But this one, both parties were bound and obligated to participate in. It's especially significant because in it, God promises to make Israel a kingdom of priests, a holy nation in Exodus 19, six. Israel was to be God's light to a dark world around them. They were separate and called out so that everyone around them would know that they serve Yahweh, a covenant keeping God. You know, I think it's so interesting and I do this too sometimes, get mad at God about his terms and conditions. Well, why why does it have to be this way, God? I mean, couldn't you just, but we sign credit card applications all the time or, or click that button that says, yes, I accept without reading the terms and conditions all the time. Because the truth is the issuer always gets to set the terms and conditions. The one who can cancel the debt or cancel your subscription is always the one that gets to set the terms and conditions. And we sign it to get access to it, right? So God's no different than that. He set the terms and condition. As the cardholder, we agree to these terms so that we can have access. And the people did just that. I'm not gonna go through this, but Exodus 19 through 24. You wanna read that? This talks all about the law, the altars, the offerings to fulfill the law. Exodus 24, seven, the people did that. Moses took the book of covenant and read it to the people who replied, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient just like a mom with her kids, right? I promise, mom, I'll be obedient. I promise, I promise, 
All right, till it gets silent in the room and then we know what you guys are doing, right? But sin creates separation. And this is the truth from the beginning of time because death was the punishment for sin. Blood must be shed. From the beginning of time in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God shed blood to make animal skins to cover them. From the very beginning, death was the consequence of sin, so blood must be shed. Payment in blood is required for access to God's presence. So God set up the priesthood. Now this is where it gets really cool because in about February when you guys are doing your one-year Bible, you get really sick of Leviticus. Am I right? Leviticus, why am I reading Leviticus? This is Leviticus. The priesthood is Leviticus. You read the whole book of Leviticus now after this and you'll be like, oh, I see. Oh, I get it. God set up the priesthood. And the, the role of the priesthood, the responsibility of the priesthood had two kind of major oversights. One was to act as a mediator. So you know a prophet represents God to the people. Priest represents the people to God. Okay? So they acted as a mediator. They approached God as a representative for the people. This was a holy calling. You couldn't sign up. Aaron and his sons were anointed with oil, ordained and set before and dedicated as priests. The second thing they would do is make sacrifices and offerings. This is where Leviticus comes in. The burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, the guilt, all the offerings. Priests would do this on the regular, day after day. Hebrews 10, 11 says, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. So why then? Why then was the law giving? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Galatians 3.19 actually says that. It says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. That was the point that God made in this temporary system was simply to show the people you cannot do it on your own. You will always disobey. You will always fall short. But there was one unique office, one unique role within this priesthood, and it was the role of the high priest. The high priest. And he had one day. You had one job, right? The high priest. One day. One job. He was to make sacrifices on the day of atonement. And it's sandwiched right in the middle of Leviticus. If you read Leviticus 16, I'll try to explain it briefly, but read Leviticus 16 and you'll be like, what? This is what the high priest did? Once a year on the Jewish calendar of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself and for the people on their behalf. So he'd bring a bull and he'd bring two lambs, two goats, to the, to the temple. And in the temple, there is a holy of holies, which kept everyone out except the high priest on the day of atonement. There was a veil, a huge drape. And this bull would be the sacrifice for the, pre, the high priest and his family's sins because he had to clean himself first. He had to sacrifice and atone for his own sins before representing the people. So the high priest would bring the bull and, and sacrifice the blood on the altar and then he'd have two goats. And this is, y'all, it gets wild. Ask Dr. Ferris. I mean, he will start crying talking to you about it. It's phenomenal. But the priest, they cast lots for these two goats. And one is sacrificed. The atonement for sins. His blood is shed in the Holy of Holies. And the other, this is so cool, is the scapegoat. 
And Aaron, the high priest, lays his hands on the scapegoat and starts calling out the sins of the community, all of the sins that they might have done in ignorance. And then they take that scapegoat all the way into the wilderness where he will never come back. When you say, hey, he cast his sins as far as the east is from the west, that is the scapegoat going off into the wilderness, never to return. Oh man, I want to get to that. Jesus did both, but that's fine. Okay, we're going to get there. So Hebrews 9, 7 says, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. You see, because God is so holy, good, and pure, he can't dwell with impurity. So the place of God's presence dwelt on the mercy seat. That's the spot in the Holy of Holies. And it was separated from the rest of the temple by a large, heavy drape. Note that, a large, heavy drape, a veil. Okay, we're gonna get there. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would ceremonially cleanse himself before entering the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the congregation so that God's judgment and wrath would be satisfied. And so his presence could dwell with his people. They could be reunited. You know, this is a short, brief promo. Like if you had an interruption, like a commercial interruption, some of you are like, I don't understand still. Well, great. Guess what? We have a Pentateuch class this fall. It's a 10-week class on the first five books of the Bible, the ones that we all trip up on, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you can sign up for that class tonight right here on the table. Thank you. Enjoy. First, take a look at the Pentateuch. It's going to be awesome. So back to our production. So it was the job of the high priest to offer the annual atonement sacrifices every year, year after year, to remind them of God's requirement for their sin and also their need for a substitute. But Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifice under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Verse 3 said, but instead those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Because the truth is, it is not possible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. The priesthood of the Old Testament, as important as it was in its day, was also temporary. You see that at the top. It's a temporary system. It's incomplete, and it always looked forward to something better and more complete. So here we get to the foreshadow. Y'all ready? This is where we get really excited. Okay. This showed us, this temporary show, system showed us three things. We need a mediator. We need someone who can stand in the gap to represent us to God, who understands our weaknesses as a human and understands God's holiness. Like you'd think maybe fully man and fully God that could mediate. Okay, we're getting there. So when I was in middle school, they had this thing called conflict mediators. I don't know if you guys have this. It's totally nerdy, but it's so fun. And of course I was like, totally a, a conflict mediator because I was. And you get to wear these like orange parking things and you would mediate during recess. So like if two kids got in a fight and they didn't want to go get the teacher, I'd be there. And I'd be like, I can mediate guys. You don't want to deal with the wrath and judgment of our teacher. Let's all work this out. They needed a mediator, someone who could stand in the gap, who could help keep the wrath and the judgment of the teacher, right? We need one who can represent us to God, who can stand in the gap, who can extend mercy and withhold wrath and judgment. 
First Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. I love this because he, he made sure to say this, the man, Christ Jesus, fully man, fully God. We need a mediator. We also, our need for an atonement, not just someone, but something to pay the price, to sacrifice on our behalf. Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the blood body is in its blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. You see, God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people and the priests would stand in their place offering sacrifices that satisfied God's justice and demonstrated his mercy by punishing an innocent animal on behalf of a guilty human. But Hebrews 7.27 says, unlike those other high priests, Jesus didn't need to offer sacrifices every day. You see, they did this for their own sins first and then the sins of the people, right? The high priest had to sacrifice the bull first, but Jesus did this once and for all. You should underline that. Once and for all, when he sacrificed himself for the people's sins. So we need a mediator, we need an atonement, and we need an intercessor. We need someone who should talk to God on our behalf. Someone who talks to God on our behalf. Romans 8, 34. Oh, church, this is so glorious. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is seated in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, for us, for us, for us. He is the intercessor for us. I just picture this, and I know this sounds probably elementary in what is actually happening in the glory of heaven, but I just see Jesus at the right hand of the Father. And for those of us that has accepted him as our Lord and Savior, for those of us that has taken his blood as our forgiveness of sin, he is standing there and like from the moment you're born, like your first lie, your first deceit, your first thing, I imagine Jesus being like, I got that. I paid for that. I took care of that. I covered that. Let the accuser come, because I'm saying so. I got them. I took care of that. Things that you have done, things that you are currently doing, and things that you will do in your future. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a beautiful, I don't know if you get that, but like, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow, but Jesus did, and he's already standing at the right hand of the Father being like, you know what, I got that. I know she slipped up, I got that. I know she's not enough, I covered that. My blood, it was shed for that. That moment right there, that pride, I took care of it. That jealousy, I handled it. It doesn't matter, whatever it is that you've walked through, if you believe in Jesus and you have received his forgiveness, Jesus is literally sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, I got you. I got what you've done, I got what you're doing, and I got what you will do and don't even know you're gonna do it. That is good news. That is very good news. And if you don't understand how good news that is, oh, commercial interruption, we have a Romans class this fall. And we would love for you to be part of our Romans class. In fact, Pastor Terry Olivier will be teaching Romans. You will not want to miss this because some of you might be the other side. I am like the legalistic rule follower. That's why I'm teaching on priest. But um, some of you might be like, oh, well, I got the mercy. I'm just going to keep sitting. But no, no, no. Romans will tell you what you should do in that. So take the Romans class. You can sign up right there online. Back to our production. Okay. So the fulfillment. Here we are. Oh, this is a great story. Okay, I got five minutes. I'm, I got this. When I was in high school, I turned 16. Okay, so I was in color guard because flags are amazing and sabers are awesome. And I was in color guard and we used to ride buses to competitions and I had this bus driver and I'm a baker, if any of you know that. 
you can see that I bake a lot. Um, and my husband loves that. But I baked for all the, the color guard people, and then I baked for the bus driver, and I would give him cookies every time. But I turned 16, and I got my license, and I was a block from home, and for whatever reason, my curfew was just earlier than it should have been, and I ran a red light, maybe. I think it's still yellow, but to this day, it's, you know, like 25 years ago. But I ran a, a red light, and I got stopped by a cop, and he gave me a ticket. The tears did not work. I don't know. It just did not work. Didn't matter. So I got the ticket, and the next day, I'm in school, sitting in class, remorseful, regretful, mostly because my parents could hear the sirens because I was a block away from the house. And a cop comes to my door in the classroom, and I'm like, are you for real? I'm like going to jail for a red light already? I'm like 16. Like, this could not be for real. Like, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm like, and he walks, he pulls out the door and he says, hey, do you know who I am? And I was like, no, sir. He said, I'm an officer. I'm pretty high in the, in the police force. But on weekends, I sub as your bus driver. And you always take care of me. You always bake cookies. You always love me. I want you to know you go to that courthouse and I'll take care of that ticket. You don't have to pay it. You see, what happened was, is that I didn't know that my, I had access to free me from something, to get me out of a ticket because the relationship I had with this person, the relationship and his authority gave me access, gave me a payment to get out of the ticket. But Jesus didn't come just to get us out of a ticket, still waiting for the next one and hanging over our head. He became the payment. He took your credit card, finished it, covered it, cut it up, never to be seen again. Like done, forever done. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice that paid once and for all for our sins. So here's what the fulfillment says. Your sins are forgiven. The debt has been paid in full, done, paid in full. Ephesians 1, 7 says he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Hebrews 9, 12, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all and secured our redemption forever. This is one thing that I felt like the Lord told me when I was praying for you all, that I felt even for myself. He said this, he said, don't try to keep buying what Jesus has already paid for and freely gives you. Do you ever have that friend? I have this friend that sometimes I'll buy them lunch and they like try to slip the money back in my pocket, like pay you back. Like they don't want you to pay for their lunch. And so they like hand it to you. And at first it's sweet, but then after a while you're like, could you just get over it already and let me give you something? Like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Just let me pay for your lunch, right? But that's the truth. Sometimes we just, as a people, want to earn it back, want to give it back, want to pay it back. And God's like, just receive it. Just say, thank you. Thank you. That's it. We have all access. Oh, this is the best part. Matthew 27, Jesus shouted again and he released his spirit. Verse 51, and at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, this moment is not just about God's power. It demonstrates who Jesus is, what the cross accomplished and the access we have through Christ. Jesus himself now serves as our high priest. He provided the final atonement by his perfect life and obedient death on the cross. Ephesians 3.12 says, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Church, Jesus is our sole mediator. Between man and God, we don't have to go to any religious leader for access to God. We instead rely on God's grace received through faith in Jesus. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God 
where we receive mercy and find grace to help us when we need it the most. The glory of the cross is bound up with the effectiveness of its accomplishment. And this is where I'll end tonight because this is the people that I was praying for all week and I just really felt strongly about this. I know this because this is what I struggled with when studying the priest. And so I know this to be true for my life and this is why it's so dear to me because sometimes I can default to the old covenant. God, if I do this, then you'll do this. And if I don't do this, then I might think that you're gonna do this to me. And if I do this and it, I, you don't do this, then you haven't held up your end of the bargain. But we don't live under that Mosaic covenant. We live under a greater promise, a better hope. But some of us tonight, maybe if we're being honest, we say, I know he did it, but I still wanna try to earn it. You're scared that you might go to God and be worried that if you go to him one more time, his grace ran out but that's not the God we serve. He paid for it all. Jesus accomplished the work of reconciling us to God. If I could say one thing to you tonight, one thing, receive his forgiveness and rest in his freedom. Receive his forgiveness. And I'm telling myself this too, receive his forgiveness and rest in his freedom. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight. Thank you for every person here. God, who might be saying, you know what? I'm still trying to wait on that priest to atone for my sins. I'm still trying to earn it myself or be the priest that constantly day after day, year after year goes to you and says, God, would you please forgive me so we can be together again? But God, the truth is you've already done it. The truth is it is finished and that we can receive your forgiveness and rest in your freedom. God, we don't have to be worried that we're gonna come to you and you're gonna say, I'm so sorry, it was, it was not enough. God, you've done the work, because the truth is we will never be enough, but we don't have to be. You are enough. Your mercy and grace is enough. And so Jesus, help us tonight to receive your forgiveness and rest in your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, Colleen. Such a great job. I think your WPMs, your words per minute, were a new healing place record. Wow, that was a lot of words you said, and they were all great words. Uh, but now we're gonna flip that paper over because we got one more to go. We got a little bit of time left on the clock to do. We're gonna talk about the kings and the kingship. You see, you ever, have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus leave? <laughs> like, you ever thought, man, Jesus, I just wish you were here. I just wish you were here right now. Why did you leave? This is, this is explained by what Colleen just talked about. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest the high priest would go into the place that only the high priest could go, and he would do what only the high priest could do, and the people would wait outside because they needed that priest to be in there working on their behalf. And this is why Jesus ascended to heaven, because what we need from him right now is we need him at the right hand of the Father, our great high priest, at the right hand of the Father, Father interceding for us constantly. And so as the church is moving forward, as new people are coming into the faith, salvation is happening and Jesus is working as the high priest. But one day that will end. 
One day, his time as the high priest will come to an end. And what he will do is he will transition into becoming our king. And we don't need a distant king. We need a present king. We need a king that we can see. We need a king that is here on this earth. And he will come back as king. So I want to do this. I want to shift gears and talk about the reign of God because I want to make this clear up front. When we're talking about Jesus being the king and what that means, the first thing is this to understand is according to the scriptures, the sovereign reign of God is always happening. That's the first blank. The sovereign reign of God is always happening. Psalms 47, eight says this, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. To sit on his holy throne means to rule with authority. Everything is under God's authority. God is not fighting for more authority. He doesn't need to fight for more authority because he has all authority. So in a sense, God has always been king and will always be king. There is no one who can challenge his throne. So there is a generic, sovereign, eternal reign that is happening. But what we see in the scriptures is there are special reigns in the past, the present, and the future. In the past, he reigned in Israel, and this was a national reign. What was happening is God was, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time for the rest of the uh, time we have, we're going to talk about the national reign of God. So he was leading through this nation. He was leading through the nation of Israel in the past. Now in the present, he is reigning through the church. And this is primarily a spiritual reign. And so this is what the church does. We work not in the national, not as a nation, but we work as a church, as a unique uh, group of people who are spiritual family. But in the future, God will rule the world and this will be a very physical reign. You see, he will be here and all the nations of the world will bow to him and he will have a political national presence that will go on forever and ever. So what we're gonna do now when we start talking about the function, we're actually gonna be talking about starting in the past in Israel, his national reign. First under the function, we see God's great desire. God's great desire has always been this, to be Israel's king through the covenant law. To be Israel's king through the covenant law. So now we're going to do a little bit of history here. I know we've already gone through a lot of history, but we got some more history to go to understand what is going on here. So God, through Moses, established the Mosaic Covenant. And Moses was a prophet, and he led the people for a time. Then he, he got them out of Egypt. And then God rose up a guy by the name of Joshua to get them into the promised land. And so the nation was led primarily by these two men in the very beginning. They were led by Moses and Joshua. But once Joshua got them into the promised land, God did not appoint someone to take over for Joshua. Instead, God wanted to rule and reign the people on a tribal level through the law of Moses. And so what happens is this period called the Judges. And if you ever read the book of Judges, it is the darkest, 
most, it's like watching the evening news, all right? Everybody gets murdered, okay? It's like there's crime everywhere. It's only getting worse. It's just terrible. And so you read the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, you know, you know we can read it in one sitting pretty much, but it spans about 300 years. And during this time, Israel keeps sitting. They turn from the law. They don't obey the law. They don't love the law. And they get into these cycles of sinfulness and they get into rebellion. And so God will bring in a foreign group of people to, to challenge them and to get them back on track and to discipline them. And he'll raise up these kind of king-like leaders called judges. And they'll come in and they'll kind of get everything straight. But then it just keeps going back. It keeps going back. No matter who God brought into the picture as a judge, the people kept turning from God for about a 300-year period. And the end of the book of Judges says this, in Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, what was happening was, is there wasn't one person who was leading the nation on behalf of, of Yahweh. No one standing up and keeping the people accountable, keeping the worship of Yahweh in front of them. And so what was happening is every person was just doing whatever they wanted because there wasn't anyone with the authority to bring the covenant law into force. And so what's happening here is this, is this nation is becoming desperate for change because though they should have been following God's covenant and they weren't keeping God's covenant, they just kept running into problem after problem after problem. And God always wanted to be their king through his law. But then we see man's great desire. And man's great desire is this, an earthly king. So we get to the end of the time of the judges and the very last judge is a guy by the name of Samuel. And he's also gonna become the first prophet. And he is going to be the hinge on which this whole thing kind of shifts. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel, who has been serving for year after year as their judge. And they say this in verse 4. They say that all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, behold, you are old. I love that. I, I, I can't wait for the day that my children can look at me and say, behold, you are old. <laughs> behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. All right, so you're old and you're a bad father. Uh, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. And so they are also doing to you. You see, they came to Samuel and they said, Look, you're old, <laughs> you're, you, you've been a good judge, you, you, you've done a good job, but you're gonna die and your sons are pretty much worthless. <laughs> we want a king. And the desire to have a king is not what's wrong here. And if you don't pay close enough attention, you kind of miss what they've actually said. What they're actually saying is we want a king 
who rules with sovereign authority over us like the other nations have. In other words, we want a king who just gets to make all the decisions. We don't want Yahweh and his covenant law to make the decisions in our life. We want an earthly king. We want someone that looks good. We want someone that sounds good. We want a great warrior. We want somebody who can just make decisions and just have all this authority. And Samuel is offended by this and he goes to God and God says, look, you don't need to be offended. I'm offended because they don't want me. They don't want me to be their king. You see, they weren't looking for God's representative. They were looking for his replacement. See, they wanted someone to replace Yahweh is king. But here's, here's the truth of the matter. Having a king wasn't wrong for Israel. In fact, you go all the way back to Genesis and it's hinted at even in the forefathers that there would be a king one day. And you go back 300 years from Samuel to the time of the, uh, the, time of the law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses is teaching and he tells them that there will be a king one day. So the whole idea of kingship was not wrong. They just wanted the wrong kind of king. So what did God actually want from his king? You need to understand this, that the king himself was extremely limited by the law itself. I'm not going to read Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, because it would take a while, but go ahead and just mark that down. It's in your notes. Just go ahead and circle that and read that later. But here's just a quick list, and I'll jot these off pretty quick, about what it meant to be a king in Israel. First, it meant that you could not be from the outside. You couldn't be from the outside. You had to be an Israelite. This couldn't be a foreigner. It had to be a descendant of Jacob. And when you look back in the, in the book of Genesis, when Jacob himself is actually uh, about to pass away, he's talking to all of his sons. And there's one particular son that he says the line of the kings will come from. And that son is Judah. This is why Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Because Jacob tells Judah, the scepter will not depart from your hand. In other words, one day when you become a great nation, and there comes a time to choose a king. He must be from the line of Judah. He cannot be from the outside. One other thing, the second thing is that he can't build giant armies. He can't build this giant fleet of horses and chariots. Why is that? Why do kings build armies? Well, one is for defense, but giant armies are not usually built for defense. They're built for offense. You see, God had promised Abraham a very small slice of heaven called the promised land. And he said, that's your portion and you get no more. You see, the job of the kings was not to expand their kingdom. It was not to go from town to town outside of the promised land and make their territories bigger. That was never the goal. And if you keep building this army, then your temptation is gonna be to go and conquer other lands. But that was not what God had portioned for his people. So they couldn't build giant armies. They couldn't have many wives. Now, this isn't necessarily just talking about polygamy, though it is, but really what it's talking about is in the ancient world, kings would marry the daughters of other kings to create treaties and bonds and alliances. 
And we see this happen actually uh, with David's son Solomon, and he multiplies his wives. He goes against this very rule. And it, all it does is it leads to disaster. And the next one is this, is he couldn't rule of his own accord. This was the most interesting thing. The first thing that you had to do when you became king was you had to write a copy of the law of Moses. In other words, the first five books of the Bible. That was job number one. Think about all the things if you became king, you would do first, right? Think about all, you've got all this power just given to you. And God says, the first thing you're gonna do is you're gonna write out the entire law. And then as king, you have to read it daily. Why? Why was this so important? Because the king did not operate outside of the law. He was there to enforce God's standards. He was there to enforce God's ways. He was never there to just make his own decisions. He was not judge and jury. He was there to take the word of God and make sure the people's lives lined up with it. And the last thing is the king could not exercise full jurisdiction. You see, the king wasn't even in charge of the judicial system. The priests were. So the king didn't even have the ability to go and punish people the way that we would think a king would. In fact, he was actually could be punished himself if he went out of line. And so God had these checks and balance systems in place. He had the priest in charge of the judicial system. And then he rose up these prophets who would come and share the word of God to the kings. And so you think about when David messes up uh, with Bathsheba, God sends a prophet to David, a prophet named Nathan, to charge him for his sin. This was very, very common in the Old Testament. God would rise up these people. So you see, these kings were not designed to just live and rule and reign any way that they wanted. Now let's talk about the foreshadow. So God raises up a king by the name of David. Now we've heard of David, right? David and Goliath. He's an incredible man. He's a man after God's own heart. And David loves the Lord. And one day God makes a covenant with David. And this covenant is so important for us to understand. In 2 Samuel chapter seven, it says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Now this is God speaking through the prophet to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Everybody say forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I, uh, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes this unique covenant with David. And here's what he says. He says, you're gonna have a line of kings that come from you, from your own body, your own sons will reign and then they will die and then their sons will reign and there'll be this continual pattern. 
And I'm going to treat every single one of them like they are my son. I'm going to discipline them when they need disciplining. I will encourage them when they need encouragement. I will take care of them. I will keep them on the right path. I'm going to take care of the sons of David. But then he says something super interesting at the end. He says, I will establish your throne forever, forever. And he says it three times. Why does he say it three times? Because he's serious. This covenant is not temporary. God is going to establish the covenant forever. So starting from the point of David, through the end of the Old Testament, there are 20 sons of David that we read about in the Bible. King after king after king. And out of the 20, only nine of them, only nine of them are what we would consider decent. In other words, most of them are pretty terrible kings. And so what's happening is, is there's all this hope, right? Like God is gonna establish David's throne forever. And then David's son takes it. And you, you know the story of Solomon. And, and at first he's a great king. He starts out amazing, but then he turns from the Lord. And then king after king, you see these stories over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of years until you get to the time of Jeremiah where hundreds of years have gone by, about, uh, about 500 years or so have gone by and the failures have just kept piling up. And as the king fails, the nation fails. And during the time of Jeremiah, they are about to go into exile. In other words, God is going to take them out of the promised land for the first time since Joshua got them in. So B, we see the hope of a perfect David. The hope of a perfect David. Jeremiah the prophet on the edge of the exile says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah is telling the people that there is yet a descendant to come. There is a descendant of David that has not come that will be different from everyone before him. He will be perfect. He will be righteous. He will be what David never could be. That's the foreshadow. Now let's look at the fulfillment. A, the perfect David has come. The perfect David has come. In Luke chapter one, verses 31 through 33, the angel comes and says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So you see this angel comes to this descendant of David, this girl named Mary. And the angel says, you're gonna have a son and you're gonna name him Jesus. Jesus. 
Now, I don't even have time to explain how amazing the name of Jesus is and how it's all connected to what we've been talking about. You can come to night school if you want that information, okay? But he says, you will have a son and his name will be Jesus. You know what's gonna happen? His throne will be established forever. In other words, this is a very Jewish way of telling this girl that the covenant of David and the prophecies of, the, of all of the prophets, specifically Jeremiah, the righteous David, the perfect David has come and his kingdom will last forever. None of this is by accident. Jesus is born in where? What's the city? Bethlehem, the city of David. The perfect king has come. But B, understand this. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You see, Jesus came and he fulfilled his role as prophet. He did the miracles. He, he performed miraculous things. And he taught the word of God in ways that no one had ever heard before. He told us about the future and prophesied things that would happen that nobody could deny. Then he died and began his role as priest. He became our priest. And because he's our priest, our sins are forgiven. We have a permanent mediator between us and the Father who sits at the right hand. But in the way that he rules the church now as king, he will one day rule the world as king. You see, in Revelation chapter one, Revelation chapter one, let me give you the, the, the setup here. There's this guy, this disciple by the name of John. It's not John the Baptist, it's John the beloved. And, and John is one of the most unique human beings in the Bible because John, as far as I can tell, is the only disciple who got to see Jesus in all three phases. So when Jesus was the prophet walking the earth, John was his disciple. He knew him very well. I mean, remember the story in, in John 13? I mean, John is like snuggled up next to Jesus at the Last Supper, all right? Jesus and John were, were boys, all right? And Jesus dies and he rises from the dead. And for 40 days, he appears to who? The disciples. So he's now in his priestly time and John sees him for 40 days. Jesus ascends to heaven and 60 plus years go by and John leads the church. He becomes uh, an amazing pastor. He becomes the Bishop of Ephesus and he lives this amazing life and he's doing all of these miracles. And what happens to John is, is he gets persecuted and, they, and the Romans send him to this island called Patmos as a punishment. And one day he's praying and he gets the revelation. In verse 12, it says this, it says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Think about this. John sees Jesus, the prophet. He's so comfortable with him, right? He sees Jesus, the priest rising from the dead. He spends his whole life preaching the gospel. Then he sees this vision and it says that he falls like he is dead. That's a biblical way of saying he passed out. He went unconscious at the sight because he was seeing something he's never seen before. He was seeing a figure he never seen before and it overwhelmed him that his earthly body couldn't even contain it and he fell dead. He didn't even realize it was Jesus. Do you, do you see what happened? Jesus had to revive him. Jesus had to like, all right, wake up, buddy. Wake up, buddy. Do you know who I am? I'm the alpha. I'm the omega. I'm the living one. I was the one that was dead and I'm alive forevermore. You see, why did he faint at this sight? Because he had seen Jesus the prophet and he'd seen Jesus the priest, but he had never seen Jesus the king. And do you know what the revelation is all about? The entire book of Revelation is about one thing. It is about Jesus fulfilling the covenant of David, coming back for his bride, coming back for the people of Israel and setting up his earthly reign here. Look at what 11.15 says. It says, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You know, back in the gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us what we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. Some of you might know it as the Our Father. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Jesus instructs us to pray, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. This is what he means. You see, as believers, our prayer, our hope, everything rests on the promise of his return. You see, we are saved because of what he's already done, but we set our eyes to the future. We set our eyes to the time when the nations of this world, think about all the nations of this world. You think about America, you think about Russia, you think about Canada, you think about the Middle East, you think about Europe. All of those nations will become his. When he returns, he will come in his full glory and no one will be able to challenge the Lamb of God because he is the perfect David. And I thought this is the best way to close this night out. I'm gonna ask everybody to stand and we're gonna pray together and we're gonna do what the king has said. You see, he reigns now in our hearts as believers. He reigns now in the church, but his reign isn't complete. He's going to return and as believers, we should be praying that return in every single day. So if you are a Christian, if, if you believe Jesus the prophet, if you've been redeemed 
by Jesus the priest, then I want you to lift your hands to Jesus the King. And we're gonna close this night out praying for the spread of his reign. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words as a prophet. Lord, we thank you for your miracles as a prophet, for every prophecy that you ever gave your church, Lord. God, we thank you for your constant work as a priest. Lord, we, we can't go there. We can't go into the holy of holies of heaven. We can't go into the hidden places and represent ourselves. We're not worthy. But Jesus, you lived a perfect life and you ascended to the right hand of the Father. And like Romans says, you intercede for us on our behalf, every time we fail, every time we sin, every time we have a bad thought, every time we have a moment of, of unfaithfulness, God, when we doubt your goodness and we doubt your grace, Lord, every time we, we believe the lies of the enemy, you intercede for us because we are yours. But Lord, we want you here. We want you here on this earth, reigning over your people, rescuing Israel, allowing us to rule and reign alongside you. All the great promises of the millennial reign of the King, Lord, we want those things in our life. Now we don't live for this world. We don't live for this time. We live for that time. We set our eyes and we set our hearts. And Lord, we pray, let your kingdom come. Let it come through us. Let it be in our hearts. Let it stretch out into our city. Let it spread into our families. And Lord, until the day that you return, we will build your kingdom because it's the only thing that will last. The kingdoms of this world will fade. And we believe what the word says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, you are a prophet, you are a priest, and you are a king. Let your presence rest on this house. Let your presence rest on this people. Let us not be concerned with the temporary. Let us think of the eternal. Let us not invest our lives into the now. Let us invest our lives to the then so that at the moment of your return, we will be changed in a moment, changed into your likeness and receive the reward that you will bring with you. Lord, let your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and subscribe so you can become a part of the community here and stay up to date with what is happening at Healing Place Church. For more information about HPC, visit healingplacechurch.org.